there is a certain thrill to just giving everything you have. Even if it is sort of painful or difficult, there's something very freeing about just giving everything you have into something. And a race has a beginning and an ending to it. And so there's something very freeing about having a very intense experience of yourself that does have a start and an end, and then you can reflect. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. So we're sitting today here with Mark Allen, who needs no introduction in the world of sports, six-time Ironman world champion. I love the 21 straight victories over, what, a two-year period, which I would not want to have been racing against you during that period. (laughs) Um, ESPN's greatest endurance athlete in history. And one of the things that brought me here and got me really interested too is like, I think when I look back at progressions that have happened in sports, but also just in the workplace and in society, like the integration of mind and body and spirit into into creating peak performance, whether that's in mind or on the race course. And I think you were definitely one of the trendsetters in that category as well, um, which I'm sure a lot of Mm. athletes now have caught up to, but in your day, very ahead of your time on that. So I'd like to start with, what do you have for breakfast this morning? (laughs) (laughs) What did I have for breakfast? It's, it, you know, I have my standard breakfast. It's a, a tortilla, I slather some hummus on it, throw some avocado on top of that, throw some arugula on top of that, and then throw two eggs that I've fried on top of that and put a little salsa on top of that, a little <laughs> salt, and I'm good to go. Very good. What did you have for breakfast? Do you remember your last Ironman that morning? Oh, yeah. You get back to that time. Yeah, breakfast race morning is very unspectacular. You know, you're just trying to get some calories in. So I I usually had something that was similar to uh, Ensure, you know, just a meal replacement drink that would give me a few hundred calories. I'd usually have a piece of toast with a little butter, avocado on it, throw some salt, because usually in the morning is the last time you get anything salty for over eight hours. You know, out on the race course, it's all sport drink, and it's usually sweet. So you want to not have that taste profile going in first thing. But anyway, it's, you know, it's, it was mostly liquid because it's very hard to get solid calories to digest race morning. You're nervous. You know, there's anxiety. There's tension. There's fear. There's anticipation. And so, you know, I stuck pretty much with a mostly liquid diet that race morning. Very good. So before we get into the racing and training and coaching, all the stuff that you're into these days, talk about growing up and curious, like what your athletic life was like as a kid. Growing up as a kid, I I was a swimmer. I saw the 1968 Summer Olympics on TV. It was the first Olympics that I'd ever seen, and and, uh, it was in Mexico City. And I was just mesmerized by the distance swimmers. I thought, how can they go back and forth and back and forth? Because at that point in my life, I was about 10. And 
for me to go one le- length of a 25-yard pool was an absolute maximum effort. I had to stop at the other end and just catch my breath and usually just get out because that was, you know, that was a long way, right? And they're going 800, 1500, you know, and it was like, I was boggled by it. And shortly after I saw the Olympics in the summer, there was a, an advertisement in the local newspaper. I, I grew up in Palo Alto before it was Silicon Valley. <laughs> and um, it was for... The local swim team, they were having tryouts. My mom goes, why don't you just go and try out? You loved what you saw, you know, on the Olympics. And so I went and uh, plopped in the pool, and I was actually able to go about 100 yards without stopping. And anyway, so that was the beginning. I swam all the way from the time I was 10 through college. But I was very, very outstandingly mediocre. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was never... I never won any big races. I never qualified for Olympic trials. I certainly didn't make it to the Olympics. And, you know, if I if my time was even close to the world's record for the women, I was thinking I was doing pretty good, right? So n- not in a million years did I think that I had the potential to be one of the best at anything to do with sports. But I love sports. You know, I loved mm-hmm. swimming. I loved that process of getting more fit and, and just doing that work over and over. I wouldn't say that that I'm a natural racer, however. You know, I obviously I went to swim meets and I did a lot of competitions over the years. But when I was younger, I didn't have the right mind for it, you know. And the problem for me was that as soon as somebody would get just a little advantage, you know, I just thought, oh, the race is over, they're, they're faster, I'm slower, or, you know, I'd do the quick assessment of the guys on the blocks before the gun went off, and nine out of ten times, I was the smallest guy up there. So, of course, you know, intimidation factors, you know, big already. And I didn't have a way of just putting all of that aside and giving the best that I had, you know, and so... Um, Two years after I stopped competing in swimming, I was out of college. I'd been out of college for two years at this point. I was 24, and I saw the Ironman on television, and it was the first time I'd seen that sport, that event. And again, it was one of those mesmerizing things where it's like, how can they do that? How can they possibly do that? I mean, when it was it was on Wide World of Sports, and Jim McKay was... I came in partway through the program, so I didn't know quite what it was, and he was explaining, and he said, you know, it's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, a marathon, and I thought, man, I wonder how many days it takes him to do that, you know, but then he said it's one day, it's one event, it's one sport, and um, so again, I was mesmerized, and about a month later, I thought, I have to go there and just see if I can do that crazy thing. I mean, if I could cross that finish line, that would be so amazing. Anyway, to get back to the kind of the mindset thing. I did a race in the beginning of the summer. It was a short distance triathlon. This I, I saw that in February. I started training, did a race in San Diego, a short distance triathlon, just to see, you know, get some experience at racing, swimming, cycling, running. And I came off the bike actually in fourth place. And right away this guy passed me about a mile into the run. I went into fifth. And so my swimmer tape immediately started to play saying, oh, he's stronger and faster. And then something just said, hey, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, and I just got my mind to be quiet and everything relaxed. And all of a sudden he stopped pulling away. And the next thing I knew, I was passing him back and I ended up finishing in fourth place. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the guys who beat me were three of the best guys at the time. So everybody was like, wow, who is this guy, Mark Allen, you know? 
Dave Scott, Scott Molina, Scott Tinley got one, two, three. You got fourth place. That's amazing. But the most amazing part for me was that I that I had finally cut that mental tape that says if you're behind, the day is done, and that you know that was like a just this very small shift that became a huge yeah. it had a huge impact on me and my racing as I you know then developed over the years. How much running and cycling had you done up to that period to be coming in fourth? Oh, I rode my bike to school, you right. know, and uh, <laughs> that was about it. Uh, my, I didn't have any background in that, you know, and, and being a swimmer for 12 years, not being outstanding in the least, even though I didn't swim fast, it built that aerobic engine, it built that cardiovascular engine, obviously. And I'm just not built to be a great swimmer. You know, I don't have giant shoulders. I don't have super flexibility. You know, my feet aren't like flippers. My knees don't bend backwards. All the things that you need to be Michael Phelps, right? But cycling and running, I'm, you know, my toolbox is pretty much put together much to be more natural for me to do those two sports. And so right away with, with the cardiovascular conditioning and the, you know, just that kind of work ethic that I had from swimming, it was easy for me to start to make some pretty good progress in those two sports. Did you have role models that you were looking at? You know, you talk about seeing this on TV in sports or in life as a kid that kind of you were reaching to or aspiring to. Yeah, well, when I when I got into triathlon, I looked at the guys who were faster than me and, I, right. and they were my role models, you yeah. know, because I was like this wide-eyed 24-year-old and just amazed at how they could go as fast as they did. Dave Scott was one of the main guys. You know, he was kind of the guy setting the trend in the early 80s at Ironman distance anyway. And so, I, you know, I really, I ended up training with a bunch of the guys who were the best because somehow San Diego was attracting a lot of top talent in the sport. And we all started training together and none of us had coaches because nobody knew how to coach this new sport Mm -hmm. and so we you know we just we we became friends so that was funny because here's people that i idolize but we're also friends and so if i could just slowly get closer and closer to them in the workouts you know it was just it it was exciting for me and uh then again you know i i also didn't take anything for granted you know i i saw as a swimmer that you can work really hard but it takes more than just hard work to do well. And so, I, you know, right from that very first race, I, I really tried to kind of work on my inner landscape, I guess you'd say. And that, that really became a, a key to, to my racing because I think when things were not going the way that I'd hoped in the races, somehow I was usually able to at least get the best I could out of whatever situation was going on. And that was a, that was a skill that I had to learn, but it served me well, you know, as I went through my career. So talking about your career, so how old were you f- during your first Ironman? I did, I did one that, fr- at that the ver- year. Yeah, the end of that first summer, I was 24. Yeah. You know, I was floating in Kailua Bay, just looking around going, wow, this is amazing. Then the gun goes off and people are like just swimming over me and kicking me and pushing me under the water. I'm thinking, this really sucks. This is terrible. <laughs> and I thought, well, what did I get myself into here? You know, and I thought, I can't wait till this thing's over. And finally, you know, I about halfway through the swim, I was able to get kind of some open water and got into a rhythm and got on the feet of this guy that was doing a pretty steady pace. And so I thought, just just draft off this guy, take it easy. You're only going to do this thing once. You know, once you get out of the water, at least you'll be able to see what's going on. And I came out of the water on, on the feet of this guy. And I looked up, and as you went under the clock, it had a, 
a number next to the time that showed what position you were in, and the number next to my time was number two. I'm like, what? I'm on the leader of the race? You know, and I ran, I ran up, I thought, who, who the heck am I following here? And it was Dave Scott, who at that time was, he was the guy to beat. And so all of a sudden I go from thinking, this sucks, to thinking this is amazing, right? <laughs> you know, not, not in my wildest dreams that I think I would be right on the feet of the guy that, that everybody was, was targeting. And we, we ended up staying together for over half of the bike ride. And at one point my derailleur broke. And, uh, you know, Dave rode off, my race was done, but so I didn't, I didn't cross the line that year, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that one time dream of finishing was gone, but right. I mean, you know, I'd been with the best guy in the world for four hours of racing and I thought maybe, maybe I can be pretty good at this sport. Mm-hmm. And then it took a few more years of trying, right? Yeah. The, you know, the yeah. first six Ironmans that I did were, were either sort of conservatively paced and I finished strong, but not a outstanding time, or I really went for it and I completely blew up. But either way, I couldn't find that, that midpoint where you're giving it everything you have, but not so much that it's, you're going you're gonna to completely explode on the marathon. And, you know, I could be in the lead halfway through the marathon. I could be in the lead, you know, two-thirds of the way, but I just wasn't able to hold it and come, up, come away with victory. And... After six years of trying, you know, being second twice, being third, being fifth twice, you start to wonder, is this dream of winning actually a reality? I mean, how many, how many times are you going to go back to the drawing board and, and try to redesign something and, and come up with something better when nothing seems to be giving you that last piece that's missing? And I just didn't know what that last piece really was, you know, and part of it was my training. But it's as an athlete, it's... You, you have a certain number of things that you do that you know work. But if they're not working fully to get you what you're after, you have to put in something that maybe you've never done before. But it's like, if you've never done it, maybe you don't even know what the heck that is. Mm. And so in 1989, as I, I was kind of thinking, am I going to go back for number seven or am I just going to go to the other races where I know that I have shown that I can, I can win, I can beat Dave right. Scott, I can you know be the champ. So I had to have one of those talks with myself like you know it really ultimately is not about whether I win it I just want to go back and have a strong race you know where I really give it everything I have but I pace it right I don't get too excited early I hold off and I have a strong run all the way through to the finish whether if I win great if Dave Scott wins or somebody else that's fine but ultimately there's only going to be one person win the race so Does that make everybody else a loser? No, absolutely not. You know, so I really had to go back to the, just that, that personal goal of what would mean something to me to go back. And so that's what I did that year. And I, I changed a number of things in my training. I did some, a, a couple of days that were a lot longer than I'd ever done before because I saw that you know, I was consistently falling apart after hour six of the race. And so I did some eight-hour training days that year. And I, I could start to feel, okay, physically, I think I'm there now. But mentally, I just didn't know what it was going to take because I, I saw that even though that tape wasn't quite the way it was when I was a swimmer, you know, when I started feeling things going south, there was still a little echo, you know, right. there was a still a little bit, and we all have that, right? Yeah. You know, when you're feeling good, it's easy to be confident. When your legs are starting to hurt and your energy is dropping, you can doubt your ability to fulfill a dream that you have. And, and that was happening a lot for me. And 
So I went to the, when I first got to the island that year, I went to this little place by the water and uh, I just said, hey, big island, just help me just to have a great race here. You know, just help me to have that, that race that I've been searching for. And it was like the first time I felt like I could hear the island talking, you know, and, the, and I, I had this sense that it was like the island was saying, yeah, you can have what you have come here for, but you're going to have to have courage. And I'm thinking, right. oh, okay, that's, <laughs> that sounds like a big hitch in the plan, yeah. right? You know, that courage thing. But I didn't know what that was going to be. And so anyway, you know, Dave Scott and I swam together the entire swim. I stayed on his feet the entire way because I thought, this guy knows how to race it. Why, why do anything other than what the best guy's doing? We stayed together on the bike. I shadowed him the whole way, just sit, thinking, he knows how to pace this thing. I'm going to try to learn what I can here. And we started running through town, and uh, he set this pace that was, it was well under six-minute pace. And at that point, it was 10K through town. And so we were running sub-six-minute miles for the first 10K. And my logical brain goes, this, this is, is, this is suicide. This yeah. is absolute suicide. But I figured, again, he knows what he's doing. And, and if I blow up, at least I blow up with the best, right? And so then we, we headed out of town. And, and at that point, you had 10 miles straight out, 10 miles straight back on lava with silence, the only thing to break it up is each aid station, you know, where people are giving you food and water. But in between, all you could hear was our four feet soaked with sweat, hitting the ground, squish, 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 squish. And, you know, the pace actually got a little more sane out there. And we were going, we made the turn, we're, we're heading back, and he's starting to push it. And he's dropped it back down to sub-six-minute miles. And I'm like, I just don't know if I can do it. You know, and then all the garbage came in, like, ah, Dave, he's so strong, I can't do it. You know, wow, I shouldn't have come back. My legs are killing me. I got these blisters that have popped. My feet are... Finally, it was so hard to stay with him that my mind just, like, went quiet. And when it went quiet, something came back to me that I'd seen two days before the race, and it was a, it was an advertisement in a workshop in this magazine that I was just flipping through, for uh, it was going to take place in Mexico, teaching a way of life that comes from the Indians in that area, the Huichol Indians. And you know, I would later learn that the Huichol Indians have a saying that says it's it's never over until it's over. Meaning, no matter how impossible something looks or how difficult it is to take that next step, take it anyway because it's never over until it's over. And I would also learn that the Huichol Indians actually work on and value the ability to get their minds quiet. Because, you know, they say when, when you can be quiet, then you can tune in and get the real answers to life or you can get the real insights into life yeah. or you can feel connected to life. You know, when you're talking to yourself day and night, all you're doing is actually isolating yourself from life. Yeah. So anyway, in this ad was a, were photos of, of the two shamans, medicine men that were going to be leading it. One was 110-year-old Huichol Indian Don Jose and the other was his adopted grandson, Brant Secunda. And they both had this look on their face in this photo that was that beautiful combination of peaceful but powerful, you know. And as an athlete, that's what you're looking for in a race so that that flow comes. You want to have that quiet and that peace, but you also want to be able to just sense mm -hmm. a certain strength yeah. in there that's just slowly coming out as the day unfolds. And right when my mind went quiet in the race, Don Jose's image came back to me, and I could just feel that 
it's like he was right there with me, you know, and I could just feel that sense of peace, but also strength just kind of filling me up. It was like life force just coming into my body and all of a sudden everything just relaxed and loosened up and I could feel that flow come back. And then it's like, I didn't care if I won because all of a sudden I was just in this amazing moment of space where everything was, I was just part of everything and it was moving and I looked around and I'm like, look at this, this is amazing, <laughs> this lava is so beautiful, you know, like, wow. And, While you're running yeah. five something miles. <laughs> and, and there's Dave Scott, this is awesome, here I am and there he is and look at this, there's still miles to go and, and you know, who knows how this is going to turn out. You know, and I'm sure he was thinking about splits in the next aid station where he's going to drop me. And, you know, I'm having this vision of one of the greatest shamans of the modern time. And it just shows you that so many realities can coexist in the same place, right? And so it's like, what do you want to be connected to in the, the difficult moments or the challenging times in life, whether it's a race or anything else? It's like... <sighs> Get your mind to be quiet. Stop. Take that breath. Draw back for a second. And then you're tuned into something much greater than, than whining about your situation that you're in, right? And so the race kept going, and we're side by side, and there was this huge entourage of motorcycles and, and cars and camera vans and people on bikes and mopeds following us, and everybody was silent because you know nobody had ever seen a race like this before. And both Dave and I knew that with about a mile and a half to go, there was one last long uphill that would then take you down into the town of Kona and the, the last finishing little stretch to go to the finish line. And that was really the only course feature that both of us knew was going to break the race up. You know, leading into it, it was just gen kind of gentle rolling hills. And I could see that he was, he was actually a little weaker than me on the uphills. And so I would play dumb and we'd go on these upgrades i'd actually drop back a little bit so that he was hopefully would think that he was better <laughs> on the uphills right but then on the downsides the other side he was much faster and so i knew if we can't if we crested that last hill together he would win because there's no way i could keep up with him on the downhill and so we got to the the bottom of that last hill it was about three quarters of a mile long and there was an aid station and you know conventional logic says you grab one last glass of whatever it is that you're going to get a little bit of energy into the tank and then take off. And so we both knew, we both had the same thought, like grab some stuff and then go. And so he actually accelerated a little bit just before we got to the aid station and he came in in front of me and he grabbed one last glass of whatever he was drinking. Right. And I started to come in behind him to grab my last glass of calories and just as i started to reach my hand out something just said go and it was like i was shot out of a cannon and i pulled my hand back and i took off you know this is this is like don't grab the gatorade right it's like go against the logic that says play it safe and do it smart this was like the intuition that was saying no do it differently this is your chance yeah yeah and in the few seconds it took him to get his glass and look back i'd already put a few feet on him and all of a sudden, you can see it in the footage, he's shocked. Like somebody is pulling away from him in this last bit of the marathon, which had been his territory for years. And all of a sudden, you can see him get tight and, the, you know, something's going on in his head and, and he starts to rock and, and he's losing his form. And I got to the top of the hill before him. I got down to the bottom of the hill before him. And then I knew that I had it. You had it. And so from there, it was just getting to the finish line and... and um, 
having the first really great race there that I'd had in, in seven tries. That's amazing. The quieting the mind part, how were you able to channel that later? Like what did, what did you take from that that you were able to bring into your life and into your future races? And even just quieting your mind enough to show up in the right state of mind, but then to go and race at that level. Well, it's, you know, it's not like you get into this quiet space and you're just there. It's yeah. like you're in it for two minutes, five minutes, and then your mind starts to wander or go crazy or get negative thoughts again. Then you have to bring yourself back to it. And it, it just it's like that. You keep bringing yourself back to that sort of that quieter place where in a certain sense you, you're, you're not as attached to the outcome of it. You're more interested in just pulling up the best experience you can from whatever's going on. And I, I actually started studying with Brant Secunda, Don Jose's yeah. grandson, shortly after that race, because I thought, there is something there. You know, there is really some kind of energy or power or strength that I was touched by in that race that was the switching point. And, you know, <laughs> the funny thing is when I went back to the condo after the race that year, you know, my friends and family, you know, they can't really get out on the course. So they're like, well, what happened? And how would you, you know, how, how did, you, blah, blah, you know, they're asking me all these questions. And I go, well, I saw it had this image of this beach <laughs> Olympian shaman. And, and they're like, huh? You know, yeah. but it's not what you expect somebody who just won a world championship to be talking about. Right. So anyway, so I started studying with Brant and that's a lot of what he helped me to develop over the years after that that event was just that ability to to just get quiet you know in a, in a very quick mm. moment and to to focus on practicing that over and over and over and i tell i tell the athletes that i coach i say you can do this in any workout you know there's usually some point especially if it's a more difficult workout where you start whining you start going it's too hard it's too tough it's too long i'm too tired i shouldn't be doing here i got so much to do you know whatever it is get yourself to be quiet and maybe it's only, you'll only be quiet for 30 seconds or a minute, or maybe it'll last 10 minutes, or maybe the rest of the workout. But as you do that in every single training session, then when you get in the race, you can get back into that quicker and more frequently. And, you know, a lot of athletes know that probably the biggest thing you're going to have to deal with is themselves in the race. But very few actually do anything in training to help them practice how they're going to deal with themselves you know they swim they bike they run they do their their functional strength they do all this stuff but in training it's it's low pressure right i mean if you have a bad training day you have another training day tomorrow hmm. in a race if you, if you're having a bad race you know a bad ironman in hawaii you've got to wait a year if you can't pull yourself together so figuring out how to pull yourself together in training will enable you to do that in the racing anyway so brant really he was a critical, the critical part of helping me develop that more and more as I went through the, the next uh, five Ironmans that I did there in Kona. Was it more of a mindset overall, or were there like techniques that you practiced with him or learned that you were really like specifically kind of bringing in? Yeah, there, there are specific practices that yeah. you can do that come from the Weechul tradition that help you develop the ability to get into that quiet space and to, if nothing else, experience it. And mm -hmm. so much of getting there is having the experience of it, you know, and it's, it's almost like 
if somebody's never been happy, they don't know what happy is, you know. But once you have something happen that you're just really happy about, then you go, "Oh, that's happy," you、right. know. Hey, I can do that. I can、yeah. be happy, you know,、yeah. or whatever it is. And so that a lot of the the techniques that he teaches in his workshops, he has a, a website dan-、uh, shamanism dot com. He's got a lot of retreats all over the world. A lot of those techniques, just as a byproduct, help you to quiet your mind, you know, and to connect with that deeper part of yourself that really is well able to give give everything you have, even if the situation isn't ideal. You know, taking that next step, even if things look impossible for you, and trusting in, in life itself. And going back to that race when you had that moment, wasn't that the marathon distance where you guys basically broke all the, <laughs> you broke the time record for? Yeah, that, that stood for many years. Yeah, that race in '89, Dave Scott did his best time there to that date. Actually, his best time ever in Kona、yeah. by over 17 minutes. I did my best time. Up to that point, by almost thirty, the difference in our times at the end was fifty-eight seconds—a very,、mm. very small difference. And the marathon split that year,、uh, which actually included the transition from bike to run, was two forty oh four, and that that record stood for twenty-seven、uh, years. Finally, finally, two years ago, Patrick Lange from Germany broke it. He went two thirty-nine high and change, two thirty-nine high something. So what's what's that equal in Per minute for you, It, it's around six ten miles, 6, 10. a little bit less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the funny、That's、thing is,、amazing. a couple of years ago I was on a treadmill. It was in February and it was Boston. I was in Boston at a hotel and I had traveled there that day and I wanted to get a little run in, but the weather was terrible. So I, there was a treadmill in the hotel. I went and jumped on it and I was running along and I thought, hmm, I wonder what a six ten mile feels like because I haven't measured anything for years, right? And so I, I, I keep having to hit the up button to get it to go faster and faster, and finally I got it to six ten, and I was able to hold it for about a minute, you know. And I'm like, how did I do? How did I run twenty six point two miles at after that, at that? Yeah, after the bike, after the swim, it's just mind boggling to me even.、So. Do you ever get the urge to go back out and and do it? Not、mm, at all. Next lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> you know I. You've got the surfing and. You know, I had 12 years as a swimmer, 15、right. years competing as a triathlete. That's 27 years of really pushing my body. And after my final Ironman in '95, I really felt like, you know, this feels so complete. Actually, I knew going into it, I thought this. I knew this was going to be the last、yeah. one. And I just thought, I want to. I, I had this overarching goal, actually, er, from the early years of my career, that I wanted to retire healthy, uninjured, and not burned out、mm-hmm. because. Right away, early on, I'd seen a lot of runners and cyclists and people that I, I was also training in Boulder, world-class people exiting the sport because they push too hard, their body breaks down, and then they leave frustrated. And I thought, it, I don't think it has to be like that, you know. And so I, that was one of the things, just sort of in the back of my mind, the entire 15 years that I raced was leave healthy, uninjured, and not burned out. And so when I finished competing. All of those things were in place. I was I was healthy. I still am, and、um, I know that if I went back and really tried to push my body again, that that I might pay a price that I'll never get back. So you know, I still exercise every day, but I don't do anything to be、um, race ready. You know, I don't push myself like I did. And there's a big difference between peak performance and life health. 
You know, peak performance is getting everything you can out of your genetics, and the closer you get to maximizing that, the closer you are to being injured or burned out or, you know, just like exhausted. And uh, life health is like, what can I do today that I can do tomorrow and keep doing for every day for the next 10 years or 20 years? How many of the athletes that you coach or that you see out there racing do you think know why they're reaching for peak performance? That's a good question, you know, because there's so many answers to that right. also. You know, why are you doing that? Some people, some people love competing. Some people don't really care that much about competing, but they love the training, and the competition is just sort of the excuse to, uh, you know, train. Yeah. train. And some people actually use their sport more like a practice to just help develop themselves, you know. And if I don't, I don't think it really matters what you do if you're doing something over and over and over every day, day in and day out over the years, if you do it with a certain amount of awareness, it's like there's lessons that you'll be taught. It doesn't matter whether you're chopping celery or training for a triathlon or surfing every day or at work continually doing something over and over. If it's done with awareness, each time you do it, there's going to be something a little bit different about how you do it. And over time, it's like you can feel yourself just getting tuned by that sort of process it's i don't know if i explained that very well but yeah no it's just interesting i mean i think you can go into these events and train so hard at the end i'm not sure that i've always known why i was training <laughs> it's, you have to like reflect on that a little bit yeah you, usually it's the you know there there is a certain thrill to just giving everything you have you know, even if it is sort of painful or difficult, there's something very freeing about just giving everything you have into something. And a race is a defined giving, you know, so there's going to be a start and an end. And, you know, your training will start before that. But a race it has a beginning and an ending to it. And so you go into it and, you know, this is the amount of time that I'm going to be giving everything that I have. And when I cross that line, then that is done. You know, it's very different than, let's say, work where you go, I'm going to put everything I have into this, but there's no end point. It just goes and goes and goes. And all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I'm getting kind of burned out here, you know. So it, there's something unique about competition that way. And mm -hmm. I, I think it, there's something very freeing about having a very intense experience of yourself that does have a start and an end, and then you can reflect. So what about you as a surfer now? Do you channel the competitive, repetitive piece into surfing, or are you a pretty relaxed guy out in the lineup? <laughs> I'm definitely not competitive in the water. Uh, you know, I tell people I've had, I've already competed 27 years. Right. I'm not going to compete for waves. So, you know, if you feel like you need to get this one, then you go for it, you know, but... Yeah. I use it more, again, just to as one of the things I do that I do over and over and over, and I just try to get a little better at some aspect of it each time that I go out there. And so sometimes that means that I'll actually do something that I've never done before. And other times it means that, you know, I start out the session and I'm completely off. And so I'm having a hard time getting up to my feet, you know, with any kind of smoothness, or maybe I'm not doing my turns the way I want. So what I try to do in those days is to, at some point, reach a better level of that lousiness than I'd start right. with. So maybe 
in the end, it's not my best day, but if I end it a little better than I started, that's a real lesson for life, isn't it? You know, like you can have a lousy day, but if you just give up and go go home frustrated, then you haven't gotten anything out of it. But if you're having a lousy day and you at least turn some aspect of it around a little bit and get something a little bit nicer or better out of that lousy day or that lousy moment, it shifts something for you. And then it, when you're having a good day, it actually makes it easier for you to really make a huge shift on that big day, on those good days. With how busy it seems like people are now and distracted, that mindset part of, you know, the positive mindset and being able to make the best out of the time you have. But what are the things you've seen work for the people you're, you're either coaching or working with that allows you to kind of get through all of that? The first thing is you have to be a little bit realistic about your time and your health and your family and your job and your sport and your passion and all these kind of things. You know, there's, it is more difficult for people now, I think, because there's, there are a lot of demands on people's time. It can be hard for sure to, to really dive into a sport with any passion because you just don't have the time to get to where you can envision that you would be if you had the time. So, yeah. you know, first thing is I tell people, look, try not to think about what you could be if you had the time because you don't have it. So have the best experience you can with the time that you do have. And if, if you do that, all of a sudden it's like, whew, it takes the pressure off because they don't have to become this great athlete that they could be if they didn't have a family and a job. Well, you do. <laughs> you do. And those things have value too. So, you know, once people kind of go, then they can really have fun with it, hmm. you know. I don't know if that makes sense. That's but, great. Yeah. yeah. Getting into like uh, nutrition seems to be like a almost like a loaded topic in general because it's so personal to each person. But what are some of the things that allowed you to perform well as an athlete, but also that you kind of turn to now just on longevity and staying healthy? I never did anything extreme with my diet. Yeah. You know, I saw a lot of athletes try to do things that were extreme and maybe they would get a benefit for a very short period of time, but then there would be a, a, a cost to it. And it just never made sense to me to try to go to an extreme with my diet. You know, our bodies, our bodies are set up the way they have been for thousands of years. And so I just kind of look back and go, well, is this thing I'm eating here something that is anywhere close to what my ancient ancestors would have had access to, you know? And so anyway, and I tuned in, I really tried to tune into how food was affecting my energy levels and my performance and my recovery. And if I saw that if something was popular and I tried it and my energy levels went down, it's like, okay, this doesn't work for me. And mm -hmm. so I would go back to just the basics. So I, you know, I've never been somebody who's been on the extreme end of diet. I pretty much don't restrict anything. However, I don't like stuff that's junky. You know, I can just feel like it's, I'm just putting this in my body and it's not doing anything to help me recover. You know, so I can eat something that's high taste, low nutrient density, high calorie density, and I can feel that I get filled up, but I feel kind of disgusting, you know, like gross and, and like it's not nourishing my body. And so whether it's natural or just how it evolves from so many years of doing it, you know, I really crave the things that are actually pretty healthy for you. So there's so many diet trends now, you know, the paleo diet and the keto yeah. diet and the, the you name it diet. And I think 
I haven't seen one diet stick for more than you know a fashionable period of time, and so we'll we'll see. You know, every, a couple that are a few thousand years old. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, so yeah. when you finish a big workout, what's your what is that combination? I, I always made sure that my meals had some carbs, some some good fat, and some some protein. Yeah. You know, and if any one of those was shortchanged, I could tell that hmm. not everything was getting replenished, and I didn't have the stuff to rebuild. The ratio depended just on day to day. You know, some days I could tell I needed more oil, some days more protein, some days more more carbohydrate. You know, one thing that I eat very little of is anything with sugar in it. And that's just sort of how things have evolved for me. And when I don't eat sugary foods, I really crave good stuff. You know, if I start getting on the, the sugar binge, then that's what I'm searching for. And, and I forget how good arugula tastes. And I forget how good Swiss chard is, you know, sauteed in, in your, you know, over your salmon or whatever it is. So got so many topics for you. You've got too much information <laughs> for all of us to learn. Uh, what was it like seeing your son come across in his first Ironman? Yeah. My that son, was this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. My son, Matt's raced in Hawaii for the first time this year. He's 24. He qualified last September in Ironman South Korea for this year's October. And so he, he did it. Uh, you know, his, his swim and his bike were super fast. He struggled on the run. His nutrition wasn't working the way, you know, he'd hoped. And that's, that's one of the hardest pieces to get right. It took me years. Um, so he was kind of getting nauseous and couldn't eat as much as he had planned on. And so his energy levels were a little bit lower, but he, he finished, you know, which is the main thing there. And, um, it was just amazing to, to be at the finish line and to greet him coming across, you know, cause it, he came across and, and there was just this raw emotion that you only have when you're, when, when you cross the line like that. And especially it's extra raw when, when there's been part of it that was hard for you. And part of the marathon was hard for him, harder than anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so he had this, this mix of raw emotions. that was elation and, some disappointment and just the rawness of knowing that he put himself through something that was very, very intense like that. And I said, you know, if your day had gone perfectly, you wouldn't have the same perspective on just how difficult this race is. I mean, everybody knows it's difficult, but if it goes the way you want, then sometimes you can get fooled into thinking that, oh, you know, but when you really have to keep pulling yourself together to keep going, to get to that finish line, I said, you know, you'll you'll reflect on this for a long time and there'll be things that will come back to you in the years to come and you'll go, wow, that's what I did out there. And, uh, you know, it'll enhance other things in your life going into the future. Did he have a big interest in endurance sports growing up? He played water polo, yeah. you know, he, he grew up surfing here in Santa Cruz. He mm-hmm. ran cross country a couple of years. He swam, you know, a couple of years. He got into rock climbing for a lot of years. A couple summers ago, he hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, oh, wow. went from Canada to Mexico, did it the, the harder way. So he's just done a lot of different things. And he's always had it in the back of his mind that he wanted to compete and, and do an Ironman to see what, what, yeah. what it was I did, you know. And, right. he, um, and so he went to South Korea. His, his mom actually raced. And so she actually raced that race with him and Kona this year. Oh, cool. And... Um, he, you know, after qualifying for Hawaii this year, he goes, well, I guess I'm doing this for mo- more than one year. 
So what's next? I'm not sure. I don't think he's decided on that yet. And what do you think about how kids sports and getting kids outside, how has that evolved in your time of being involved in the industry? I think it's harder to get kids to commit to a particular sport now than, than when I was a kid. You know, when, when I grew up, people usually had their sport that they were into, if you were into sports at all. Now it seems like a lot of the millennials, they love sampling things, which is fine too. You know, mm-hmm. so this summer they'll run a marathon and then next summer they're doing a Spartan race and now they're doing, you know, rock climbing and then they're going to be doing, you know, whatever it is. And so they're getting all these different experiences and maybe somewhere some will filter off and really focus on that one particular thing. But it seems like a lot of the kids now, they're not interested in devoting their entire life to one thing. You know, they want to just have this broad experience of what sport and being active and having fun with it can be. On the like longevity side of things, you know, you talked about making it through without really getting injured. What are the things that you, that you advise your people you're coaching? Well, a lot of the people I coach actually don't get injured because I don't give them as many hard, fast workouts as a lot of other coaches do. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that was part of the secret to my longevity was just training smart instead of training hard all the time. You know, our bodies aren't set up to do boot camp every day. You know, it's, we just aren't set up that way. We're, hard, we're endurance a- a- animals. You know, we're, we are the best endurance athletes on the planet. You know, we can go farther, faster than, faster at a far thing than any other planet, any other animal on the planet. And so trying to sort of tweak those genetics and do hard interval workouts every day, that's going to kill you. And so... Usually if people get injured, it's because they've either ramped up their volume too quickly and or they're just doing too much fast stuff. And so their body isn't recovering. And so things are breaking down and it's not regenerating. And all of a sudden, you know, the weak link, whether it's a knee or your lower back or an elbow or whatever, starts to really hurt. And then you're forced to slow down. And so anytime anybody gets injured, it's like, okay, there's a sign here that something was not balanced, Hmm. whether it was they were doing too much or too much fast stuff, or maybe there is something missing. They're not eating right, so they're not recovering. Then maybe they're not getting enough sleep. You know, there's only a few sort of general things that I look at, and usually you can pinpoint the one or two things that got Sleep's that a big point. one. I've heard you talk about that, and <laughs> sleep it rings true. Yeah, sleep was my one of my keys. I got a lot of sleep, I got good sleep, and I would take naps. Of course, that's all I did was right. train, so I had that luxury. But that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of folks doing endurance athletics who have jobs and families is finding the time to get enough sleep so that they can actually absorb the workouts that they do. And so if it becomes an issue, I tell them, look, in the middle of the week, you know, don't worry about if you do 25% of what's on your calendar. That, that's fine. Then on, on the weekend when you have more time, then you get your long workout in, and that's 95 five percent of your fitness anyway but make sure you get that sleep because without the sleep you don't recover when you're not recovering then you get sick you get injured you you know whatever it is what about life as an entrepreneur for you i mean you since you've you know hung up the shoes (laughs) uh, you've got books and your coaching business and looks like the the fit soul fit body retreats or camps that you whatever you call it have you you've been able to apply a lot of the same life lessons and learnings into 
Because those aren't easy things to get up and running either. Yeah. yeah, they've all been great. You know, the Fit Soul, Fit Body that you mentioned, are, those started as workshops that, that I actually teach with Brant Secunda. We co-teach those. And obviously he's the Fit Soul part, I'm the Fit Body part. Right. And we integrate those two themes together because, you know, that's, that's what we all are. You know, mm-hmm. we have these emotions and, and this internal landscape that's kind of like our soul or our spirit and then we've got our bodies and we have to take care of all of it and when we integrate it together then you're healthier you're happier you're able to achieve more what you want you feel more peace and and fulfillment out of the things that you're doing and so we we started with workshops we wrote a book fit soul fit body and uh we have workshops we have one here actually at 1440 uh in scotts valley in in february and then another one at the Kripalu Institute in Massachusetts in March. And you can, you can see the dates and information on those on Brandt's website, shamanism.com. Go to upcoming programs. So that was actually one of the great projects that I worked on after I retired from competition because you know, that integration of fit soul, fit body was what enabled me to win six Ironmans in Hawaii. If it was just how much... I was logging in my logbook. That wouldn't have earned me six victories. You know, it was doing all that physical work in a right way that was smart, so that I didn't get injured. But then strengthening my internal character so that I was able to be stable in that crazy, chaotic thing called Ironman. And then you know, my coaching, MarkAllenCoaching.com. It's at this point, it's targeted to people who are doing triathlons. We will have running up pretty soon. We integrated with a company called Final Surge, and uh, they were just voted best online log by Triathlete Magazine. So my app is actually within, in their interface, and it's great because all of the subtleties of how you combine swimming and cycling and running together, people can, can get training programs that are basically exactly what I would have done if I was you know, starting at wherever they're starting at. You know, It's a great social network that we have in there. People get daily workouts. There's descriptions on what to do each day, what to focus on. And again, it's people who have done a lot of really hard interval stuff all the time. At first, they're going to go, oh, no, this isn't... This is boring. This, is, this isn't a, enough workout. <laughs> I'm not going hard enough. My heart rate's too low. You know, you have me trained too easy. And it's like, over time, they go, oh, oh, actually, I'm starting to feel good. And I'm actually getting faster. And I just ran a PR in my 5K. And, you know... What about selecting a coach? What would you recommend for people who are looking for potentially hiring their first coach? There's, there's two kinds of coaching that you can get. One is basically kind of the informational side, which is what I provide online. So I can give you training plans, whether you're in Santa Cruz or you're in Singapore. And you know I can communicate with you and we can have dialogue. I can't be there with you every day. Some people need that kind of a coach. They need somebody that they're going to show up for a ride or a run or a swim and know that their coach is there keeping them accountable. So if, if that's the kind of coach that you feel you need or if you feel you need somebody to look at you, how you're moving, how you're set up on your bike, how your stroke is in, in the pool, you know, there are those type of hands-on coaches. Mm. But mine is, is all delivered online. And, and if people need me to look, they post videos and I, I can check it out anyway. But the main thing is to find a coach that, has gotten results from other athletes and to find a coach who has athletes who have had a good experience with that coach. You know, because some people are super knowledgeable. They're terrible to work with. Others are great to work with, but they just don't have enough knowledge. So it's kind of a a combo, you know, if you really want a great coach. All right. We'll wrap up. And uh, 
what gives you excitement or hope about the future of you know the endurance sports world we didn't even talk about your races in france i mean that for me like the you you're winning with the olympic distance mm-hmm. 11 times that's like the world championships well I, I won the first i won the first olympic distance world championship in 1989 in avignon france yeah i won the the nice international triathlon 10 times in 10 starts which is more mind-boggling to me than anything I did in Kona because I never lost in ten starts. Yeah, that's and crazy. that's and we didn't even that's I, that's for me like because that's I'm assuming a little bit that's like the Tour de France of the triathlon, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and you won it ten times. Yeah. And how do we get that that coverage or you know that excitement? I mean, every sport struggles with that, or not every sport, but yeah, you know. I think all sports kind of go through cycles of times when people in certain areas are excited about it and times when they're, it, it wanes a little bit and they want to do something different. At this point, there's a lot of um, people who've been running for a lot of years who are coming into triathlon. They're like, oh, I'd love to just do something more than just doing another marathon. And so there's, there's been a big influx of runners in the sport recently. I think what's, one thing that's going to happen is there's going to be an increase in the number of collegiate teams in triathlon, which will then bring this whole younger group into it that maybe hasn't had a a funnel to come into the sport recently. Uh, A lot of colleges are implementing a real triathlon programs right now. And so it's, it's pretty exciting. It's it's a pretty exciting time. I'm obviously I'm around, you know, I'm, I'm 60 and I'm, I still love, uh, I love the sport. I love coaching. I love being at the races. This year, obviously, being an Ironman with world records being just crushed and crumbled and set that may never be broken for quite a many, quite a few years. You know, it's pretty exciting. That's great. Anything I missed? I think you covered it. But if you think of a few things, I'm more than happy to come on and chat with you again. All right. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. All Appreciate right, take it. Care. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.